The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are continuing in our series, Who Is This Man? And in this series, we're exploring Jesus' lasting impact on the world, uh, even to this day, that this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, uh, walked the earth for 33 years, somehow his life impacts our lives even today. And so we've looked at how his, uh, his life impacted how we view others, especially those uh, that are marginalized in society. We discussed that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at his impact on academia on the intellect, the life of the mind. And today we're going to look at his impact on one ethic in particular, humility. Now you might think we're talking about humility today because we had a presidential debate on Monday, but I promise you uh, it is just a coincidence, all right? Uh, And in fact, next week we're talking about Jesus' impact on the political realm. But today it's humility. Now, if you've been around Acts for a little bit, you know we, we actually talk about humility quite a bit around here, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, the reality is different cultures tend to emphasize different sins, right? Different cultures tend to really excel uh, at certain sins more than other cultures do. So, for example, uh, if we were a congregation in Las Vegas, I'd probably talk about lust a lot more. If we were a congregation in Manhattan, I'd probably talk about greed a lot more. If we were in a poorer community, I'd probably talk about envy a lot more. But my friends, we are in central Texas. And so we talk about pride a lot. And conversely, humility. Because I don't know if you noticed, but but pride is a very real thing here. Uh, For example, I I came across this meme uh, the other day. And for those of you who, who can't see it, it says, So you think In N Out is better than Whataburger? Well, bless your heart. I uh, love condescending Wonka. And in fact, I remember the first time someone told me, Bless your heart. As you guys know, I'm not from Texas originally. And I thought, Oh, that's really nice. And then I thought about it, and I was like, Wait a second. The reality is, Jesus talks about pride and humility a lot. And so we want to talk about the things he talks about. It's a good move. It's a good move on our part. And Jesus talks about pride and humility a lot because pride is just this sort of pervasive thing in all of our lives. There's just this sort of inherent bent in all of humanity to elevate ourselves above the other, to put ourselves ahead of the other guy. For example, uh, the Jewish rabbi and author Harold Kushner tells the story of a a bright, driven, success-minded pre-med student Uh, who had a couple weeks off of school and was traveling in the East. And while this young student, this success-driven student, is, is out East, he meets a spiritual guru. And the guru says to him, why do you poison your life by constantly competing? You're so bent on success that you treat people you call your friends terribly just so you can get ahead. Success will never make you happy. Leave all that behind and join us in an atmosphere where we share all things and we love each other. And after his encounter with this spiritual guru, this young man is so floored by that that he agrees to give up his success-oriented life back home, and he moves in with this guru and his community. And six months later, this young man writes a letter back home to his parents, and he says this, Dear Mom and Dad, I know you weren't happy about my decision, but I want to tell you how it changed me. For the first time in my life, I'm at peace. Here there is no competing, no trying to get ahead of anyone. This way of life is so in harmony with my inner soul that in only six months, 
I've become the number two disciple in the entire community. And I think I can be number one by June. I don't do enough pastor jokes here, so I make them really bad when I do. Uh, now, of course, this, uh, this story is a bit silly, but that's how it works sometimes, right? And that's actually what happens in our text for today. Like, literally, four verses before our text for today, Jesus is with his disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper, and he says, hey, I'm about to go low. I'm about to suffer. My body is going to be broken. My blood's going to be poured out for the sins of the world. That's what he says, four verses. And then four verses later, we get to our text for today, and his disciples seem to have completely forgotten what he just said, and they start arguing over who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And so in our text, Jesus patiently teaches them, and by extension teaches us, and by extension ends up teaching the world that humility is where true greatness lies. And here's how he does that. He talks about pride in the abstract, humility in the concrete, and glory in the future. Talks about pride in the abstract, humility in the concrete, and glory in the future. And so let's go pride in the abstract. Look with me at verses 24 to 25. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. All right, so Jesus' followers are arguing over who is the greatest among them, which, which makes sense, right? It makes sense they're having this argument for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, these 12 disciples would have been young men, right? Young men in their late teens, early 20s. I mean, at the oldest, they're in their mid-20s. Now, I don't know if you've ever hung out with a group of dudes at this stage in life. Okay, but you get 12 young men together, jockeying for position is just something they do. It just happens. Like, in college, my roommates and I, we came upon a, a pile of phone books, and we said, all right, competition time. Let's see who can stand and jump on a stack of phone books, uh, with the, the, who can stand and, and land on top of the, the most phone books. And so we did that. I literally had a roommate break his leg doing this. Do you think that stopped our competition? No. He was just the first loser, right? We just took him to the hospital afterwards. He's fine. Rub some dirt on it. But not only is it their stage in life that leads these guys to be arguing over who's the greatest, but it's the entire culture they lived in. Jesus' disciples lived in a world that was obsessed with status. Can you imagine that? I know. It's really hard to imagine a world obsessed with status. Okay? But here's the difference, right? Of course, we live in a world obsessed with status, but they lived in a world obsessed with status, and they didn't see it as a negative thing. See, in the Roman Empire at this time, everyone had a class, and the highest honor was bestowed on the highest class, and everyone sought to climb up the ladder. That was your goal in life, to climb up the ladder. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 25, he says, hey, you know how this works. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know how the class system operates here in the empire. But since we don't, we don't live at that time, let me break it down for you what it looked like for them. All right, so here's the class system in Rome. At the top of everything in the empire was, of course, Caesar, the emperor. Big dog, right? But right underneath him were the 600 or so senators uh, who ran things for him. Underneath them were the equestrians, which was a class of people that was wealthy enough uh, to own their own horses. Uh, so if you can imagine a mode of transportation being a status symbol, again, hard to imagine, I know. Uh, but then right beneath the equestrians came the decurions, who were wealthy citizens uh, who occupied government offices and priesthoods. 
And so that's like the top 2% of classes in the empire. But like I said, everyone has a class in the empire. So here's the other 98. Right below the wealthy citizens were just your regular old citizens of the empire. Uh, they enjoyed certain legal protections and rights. Underneath them came the freedmen, uh, who did not have the rights of citizens, but they had personal liberty. And then below the freedmen at the bottom of the totem pole were the slaves. And then, of course, within all these major classifications, there's all sorts of subdivisions. And the goal in your life was to move yourself up in rank, right? So you may not ever able to be, uh, you know, not just a freedman, but you can at least be the best freedman there is, right? So if you can't be captain of the football team, you can at least be president of the chess club, right? That's kind of the logic there. But not only do these different classes exist, but there are all sorts of social cues that reinforced in the culture who had honor and who did not. So one of those social cues was the type of work you did. Uh, Cicero wrote at this time, Vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired men whom we pay for mere manual labor. The law was different for people depending on your class. We literally, we have second century legal documents that say one law for the more honorable, another law for the more humble. Seating at public events reinforced these classes. It wasn't based on what you paid for the ticket, but by rank. The higher in rank you were, the closer you got to sit to the stage. At private dinner parties, how guests were seated was according to social status. In fact, inferior guests at private dinner parties would intentionally be served inferior food, right? So on one end of the table, you got filet mignon. On the other end of the table, they're serving spam. Low-status people were not allowed to interrupt high-status people, but high-status people could interrupt low-status folks whenever they wanted. And then you notice in our text, Jesus uses that term benefactor. That's actually a direct reference to what some rich folks would do to celebrate their status. They, they would build public buildings as a monument to themselves. They'd build a public bath and slap their name on it and say, look what I was able to do. At that time, Plutarch wrote, Most people think that to be deprived of a chance to display their wealth is to be deprived of wealth itself. In fact, Plutarch wrote a book at this time called How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. No joke. He had no sense of irony. That's really what he titled it. How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. In fact, 15 years before this very moment in our text, Caesar Augustus himself wrote a book about himself titled The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. I've, I've read pieces of it. All it is is a list of everything he's ever accomplished. The Achievements of the way He writes this book about himself, has copies of it distributed throughout the entire empire. Historian Robin Lane Fox summarizes it all like this. She says this, Among pagan authors, humility had almost never been a term of commendation. It belonged with ignoble and abject characters. And so Jesus says to his disciples in our text, Hey, you know how the Gentiles lord it over them. You know how it's all about status and rank and how those at the top use it to step on people below them, right? And so Jesus, talking to his disciples, talks about pride in the abstract. And it says, if you can imagine the disciples being like, yeah, it's the worst. Those guys all stink. But then Jesus does this brilliant rhetorical move. He says, you know how terrible all that is? Verse 26, he goes, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. You see what he does here, right? It's like if I were to say to you, you all know how arrogant and egotistical those politicians and celebrities are? And everyone's like, yeah, of course, you know, they're, they're the worst. 
But then I'd say, don't be like them. Rather, whatever role you have in life, seek to serve everyone else ahead of yourself. Celebrate others before you celebrate yourself. Give credit to others. Don't take it for yourself. Use any influence you have to serve others. If you're in a place and there's a dirty job that no one else wants to do, you be the one to do it. You take out the trash all the time. See, it's a brilliant rhetorical move on Jesus' part, right? See, it's easy for us to talk about how bad pride is in the abstract, right? Oh yeah, those people are so arrogant. I'm not like them. But then Jesus says, don't worry about them. You start practicing humility right now. But then Jesus makes it worse. He cranks it up a level. Verse 27. For, whoever, for, who, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And so Jesus gives a concrete example. He says, say, say you're at a dinner party. It's kind of like a parable here. He says, say you're at a dinner party. Who do most people think uh, is, is the most important? The guy hosting the dinner party or, or his honored guests? Or do most people think the servants waiting on them hand and foot are more important? And Jesus says, well, of course, he answers his own question. Everyone knows it's the person reclining at the table, not the servant. But then Jesus says, but look at me, your teacher, your Lord, your Messiah, the Son of God. I'm not at the table. I'm a servant. Which is, of course, true. right? In John's account of this meal, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which was a job reserved for the lowest of servants. And so Jesus moves us from an abstract evaluation of pride to a concrete insistence on humility. And it's brilliant, right? Because I don't have to worry about my own lack of humility if I can just think about those really prideful people over there. But Jesus says here, no, 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 get honest with yourself. Who do you really think is greater? Who do you really think matters more? And I sometimes wonder what modern examples Jesus would use if he was talking to us today. Who do you really think matters more? Who do you really think is greater? The, the CEO of McDonald's or the kid working the drive through the homeowner or the people who work on his lawn? The citizen or the refugee? The person with the college education or the person who didn't finish high school? The white-collar worker or the undocumented worker? The owner of the restaurant or the busboy? Jesus says here, I am among you as the busboy. That's who I'm with. Incidentally, uh, just side note, doesn't really have to do with the sermon, but, but just so you know, my friends in the service industry said their least favorite day to work is Sunday afternoons after church because the customers are rude and the tips are poor. And so just a, a bonus note for you this morning, if you go out to eat after this, that's fine. Don't be a jerk. If you are, don't come back here. Okay, That's your choice, whatever you want to do. So uh, Jesus calls us to be humble. But let me be clear as we press on, there's a major difference between being humble and being humiliated. I remember a while back after a message I, I gave on humility, um, a young lady approached me afterwards and said, Hey, Pastor Gabe, I, I want to talk to you about your message this week. Uh, I was just really confused by some of it. And so her and I sat down and we talked, and she said, So you said that, that God wants us to be humble, that Jesus wants to be humble. She said, Pastor Gabe, I was made fun of and humiliated in high school all the time. Like why, why would God want me to have more of that? Why should I try and get more of that? That doesn't seem right. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> there is a world of difference between humiliation 
and humility. See, humiliation is when another seeks to push you down and exploit you. That's not good. But humility is when you willingly lower yourself for the sake of others. That's very good. As the oft-quoted C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so someone says, well, how do we do that? How How do I practice that? I read a book called Humilitas last year. It's uh, Latin for humility. Yeah, ancient languages are hard. Uh, And in the book, the author says that the first key to humility is dignity. Dignity. That a person can't be humble if they don't have a strong sense of self-worth. Which makes sense, right? Like, like, I can't willingly lower myself. I can't willingly get myself out of the way for the sake of someone else if I'm overly concerned about me and my feelings and my insecurities and my comfort level and my sense of self-worth. i got to have dignity to be able to lower myself. And so how do we do that? How do we have enough dignity to be humble? Future glory. We go down to come up. Look with me at verses 28 to 30 in our text. Jesus says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so in the last two verses, Jesus promised his disciples that they're going to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. They're going to rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. And so he promises them this future glory, this future hope. Now, ours is a little different, but of course, he promises us the future glory of his kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth where we're going to live in the presence of God in peace and in joy forever. But look what he says to them and to us before he promises that future glory. Verse 28, he says, you have stayed with me in my trials. You go down to come up. And see that phrase, you have stayed, it's, it's one word in the Greek, and it's, it's a verb that's in the perfect tense. Um, for those of you uh, English scholars out there, you know the perfect tense is something that's true in the past and continues to be true today. And I know this about the perfect tense, uh, because one time uh, I pointed that out, what, what the perfect tense is, uh, while we were translating a verse when I was translating Greek in, in my Greek class in undergrad. And as I did that, the prophet just went, way to go, Casper. I guess even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. And now I'm your pastor. So what did Jesus mean that they stayed with him in his trials? Well, he's talking about the cross. He's saying, you you entering into my suffering with me, that, that somehow my suffering on the cross and whatever you go through, that as you go through, it's somehow tied together and that you go down to come up. See, The whole reason Jesus changed the trajectory of humility is not just because he was an example. It's not just because he talked about it. It's really because of the cross. See, at this time in history, it didn't matter what culture you grew up in. You knew anyone who dies on a cross is the lowest of the low. It was a slave's death. If you grew up Jewish, you knew Deuteronomy 21-22, which says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Right? So you see someone hanging on a cross, you say, oh, that guy's cursed by God. 
If you grew up Roman, you didn't even say the word cross. It was considered a swear word. It was so disgraceful. It would have been beeped on television. Listen to what Cicero says about it. Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. So here's Cicero, a Roman citizen, saying, don't even, don't even think about the word cross. This should give us pause. Jesus' humility should absolutely stop us in our tracks. Why? Because Jesus shows us something absolutely mind-blowing about the nature of God. N.T. Wright put it like this, Jesus is indeed already equal with God, but the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. See, Jesus shows us that God, the only being on this, in the universe who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, God who has all power, all authority, all control, can literally do whatever he wants, this God chose to become human, chose to become a servant, chose to die the most humiliating death in the history of the world. What does this tell us about the nature of God? He is the God of humility and self-giving love. See, Jesus is most God-like as He gives of Himself, as He empties Himself in love for the sake of the world, for your sake. I see, when you really get that, when it really sinks in that Jesus, who is in His very nature God, chose to empty Himself of that power, chose to go to the cross in self-giving love for you, and when that sinks in, you can't help but be absolutely humbled. Right? It's not enough to see Jesus as an example of humility, but you have to see His humility for you. See, that's the means by which you're able to humble yourself before others. Because it means He loved you enough to go to the cross for you. That's the dignity you need to humble yourself before others. So there's this story of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And uh, he's going out to, uh, to start a church in this story in a, in a city called Philippi. And so he's out going to start this church, and he's sharing the gospel with folks, and he's telling them about Jesus and, and some of the local authorities and other people there, they don't like it. And so this crowd gathers around him and circles around him, and they strip him naked. And they beat him with sticks. And then they throw him into prison. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul was a Roman citizen. That sort of treatment of a Roman citizen was illegal. But Paul waits until after he's been stripped, beaten, imprisoned, and released before he says, hey, by the way, I'm a citizen. That was all legal. You weren't allowed to do that. Who does that? Right? Like, I don't know about you, but if I get stripped naked and start beating with sticks, I'm not, and I got a get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm going to say, yo, can't do this. Who does that? Who sits on a get-out-of-jail-free card while they're getting beaten up? Paul does. Why? Because Paul was in the midst of starting a church for a bunch of non-citizens who would have faced the same punishment for doing the same thing. And so he humbled himself like his Lord before him. Paul goes down because of what Jesus has done through the cross and the empty tomb. 
Paul goes down because he knows of the future glory that awaits him. Friends, Jesus' humility changed the world. How might your humility change yours? Let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for sending Jesus to humbly come to this earth, to humbly go to the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to see that true greatness lies in humility. May we find our dignity in the one who came for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.